This is the show with Cannon Brown. Can you imagine if you just held your phone up and were able to scan a sow and her pedigree information pulls up on your phone from facial recognition? I mean, that's... We went from technology to Star Wars to Game of Thrones to OSU athletics to now <laughs> facial recognition of hogs, and it's pretty pretty wild that we have that potential technology coming down the pipeline in the next 10 to 15 years. That last few minutes might have been a little confusing. You'd like to know who I was talking to, wouldn't you? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Cannon Brown, and you are listening to the very first episode of my podcast, The Show with Cannon Brown. Yeah, that's repetitive, guys, but that's how I like it. I want this to be ingrained in your minds so that you never forget my voice, the name of my podcast, which has my name in it, so you got to remember my name. Uh, I never want you to forget it, and I always want you to come back for more. So, uh, hi, I'm Cannon Brown, and this is the show with Cannon Brown. Uh, So, the very first episode, I knew I had to get a really good interviewee on, and I think I succeeded at that job very well. I have Mr. Clay Zwelling. He is the CEO for the National Swine Registry. Uh, very amazing guy. He's from Illinois. He's a past state officer from Illinois. He's a past national officer candidate. Uh, just a candidate. He didn't make it, but uh, we talk about that later in the podcast and how it kind of taught him a, a few lessons in life down the road. Uh, he went to Oklahoma State University where he was a national champion livestock judger, which I'm very jealous of. Not many people get to call themselves that. Uh, a real accolade for sure. Uh, He had some jobs after uh, college uh, and then eventually went to the National Swine Registry or NSR uh, where he sits as the CEO right now. He's an awesome guy. He has an incredible story and uh, I think this this, uh, conversation went very well. Just a little info on me. I'm a little weird, guys. So if you don't like the way I'm uh, conducting these interviews, shoot me a message or something. I'm, I just kind of go off how I talk normally and how I ask questions. And if, and if that doesn't suit you, then we got to have a conversation and figure this out because I want to kind of cater to you guys, uh, but I also want to conduct these interviews uh, in the best way possible that I can think of. So I'm weird, and you're just going to have to get over it because uh, I, I like the interviews and I like how they go. So uh, that's enough of me talking. Let's do it. Mr. Clay Zwelling. You're safer here than any place else. Now just lock yourself in and keep quiet. Uh, what are you doing in D.C.? Well, uh, kind of ironic. So I'd planned a weekend getaway for my wife and I because she had never been to D.C. And she has some cousins that live uh, right next to Reagan Airport. But ironically enough, National Pork Board is having their board meeting here on Monday. So it's uh, now turned into a work trip as well. So, Oh, I see how it is. You just you spun it off as a getaway, but you knew <laughs> you needed to be there. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> super. She's super impressed. I'm staying an extra day. Let me oh, tell you. Oh, I bet. <laughs> hey, two birds, one stone. Got to get it done. That's right. Yeah. Did you go on any like cool walking tours, or do you see the Smithsonian? We uh, we actually. She had never been, and I've been several times, fortunately. So we went and did the whole National Mall here this morning, and it is. I've never been here with so many people. It is crazy because last weekend was the Cherry Blossom Festival, but okay. all these people are here to still see the cherry blossoms bloom, and I, like you can't even hardly walk down the sidewalks. It's so busy. So yeah, that place gets pretty busy year round. I remember I went there four or five years back, and it was. It was very busy, and we didn't even come at like a special time of the year. Yeah, it's just yeah, wild. it's 
it's crazy, but that's all right. But you're a traveling fool lately. Yeah, yeah. Kansas yeah. City and then DC. And I was in Des Moines when I called you the other day. Oh, and so. you were in Des Moines when we talked the other day too. Yep. Um, and then I'm going to San Antonio this Friday, so I'm I'm just racking up the frequent flyer miles. <laughs> what are you going down there for? Uh, we actually have a provider that is working on a digital pedigree system for us, and they're based in San Antonio, and I'm basically going down there to uh, provide an update and hopefully lay out a strategy to get it finished. So, Now, what's the, like, what's the end game with that? Well, we've been working on it for several years, but uh, basically our uh, – this isn't going to be part of the podcast, is it? You don't want it to be? <laughs> well, I'll we give can, you a little different. Skip I'll, this. Give, I'll give you a little different answer. <laughs> okay. On that. Okay. Uh, yeah, th- but uh, yeah, we'll put this in. Yeah. So the the end game is uh, essentially we're going to convert our old pedigree system, which is built in DOS, uh, so very outdated, into a new kind of cloud digitally based system. And hopefully, the long term goal is people will be able to do all their pedigree work on their cell phones, or at least they'll be able to manage their their system based on a login account. So you can log in, transfer letters, record letters, request AI certs. And the the long-term kind of strategic goal then would be that this syncs up with any type of pedigree program where that data would be able to be downloaded and used at any show program in the country. So a uh, pretty big feat, but pretty exciting as well. That's That sounds very exciting. And um, I've kind of wondered what the NSR is going to do um, in the upcoming years to kind of innovate and be more technologically efficient. So, I mean, it's good to hear that you guys are making strides to uh, kind of change the system. Yeah. And we actually, um, we've launched a new app uh, here starting in Perry 2019. We haven't really promoted it as heavily. We've been piloting it at Perry and NYLC and then also Belton. Uh, but we're kind of doing our big rollout at Expo, so utilizing it for show catalogs. And, and probably the greatest value we found is utilizing push notifications to send out to exhibitors. So saying, hey, your wait cards are due in 15 minutes or uh, check-in's going to close in uh, 30 minutes. And, and people's ability to get information more quickly than just me going to the barn office and trying to do a barn page and then saying, well, we never heard any announcements. Uh, yeah. It's it's working. That's where we're probably seeing the most value, plus all the information we're able to collect. And uh, especially with NYLC, we were able to do our survey through that and collect that data basically on the spot and, and be able to disseminate that and look at improving our events. So it, it's been really neat. And hopefully that app will be able to talk to our new pedigree system in the future. That sounds awesome, especially if you can kind of integrate all those things. Um, and uh, what I was thinking is push notifications. You don't have to go make a class list. You don't have to walk in front of everybody, try to see what class you're in or something like that. You can just get a notification exactly. on your phone like, oh, I'm in these classes. Oh, 15 minutes till the first class. I'll, I need to be up there in 10, something like that. Yep. And that's, that's kind of what we're developing on. We haven't gotten it quite finessed to that level yet. And we also don't want to, we don't also don't want to blow people up with push notifications exactly. either, right? There's that, there's that sensitive line of getting enough information without getting too much. Yeah. But uh, at least having the catalogs on the phone and being able to indicate like, okay, the breed champion drive is now. So I know there's eight classes of Duroc Gilts. 
and I'm in class three, I can anticipate time and those type of things. But yes, the goal would eventually be that you could get push notifications that are individualized to your specific class if you request those. So that's pretty awesome. So we're, we're trying new things and, and seeing how they work and looking for feedback. So National Swine Registry Show Center, available on the App Store. <laughs> and w- when do you think that, um, like the end, uh, the end app where you guys have kind of developed, what do you, when do you think that's going to be done? Oh, I, I don't know. Hopefully in at least 2021, 2022 uh, is my goal. But again, with any type of tech project or migration, there's always a few bumps in the road. Oh, so it's, it's hard. Uh, and the th- and the thing is, once you get once you get it developed and established, typically it becomes outdated. So yeah. it's then it's then mitigating and determining how you move forward and and develop and advance that program as well. And I I've kind of seen this firsthand. My well, my uncle is he created Gestate. Um, yep. Him and uh, well, two of his friends they created it, and I watched that entire process, and that was that was a two and a half three year process. Uh, yep. and once they got it out, they still weren't done with it. There's, there were still things to be done. And I think they're still doing things to this day to improve, uh, the app and improve the, the use of it and how easy it is to kind of access. So th- those apps and the, that technological side of things is, is pretty difficult when you look into the nitty gritty. Well, and especially in agriculture too, I mean, Technology moves so fast and the tech industry in itself is moving at an exponential pace. And we as agriculture typically struggle to keep up with that. And it's also, and and this, this may be a bit uh, presumptuous, but, but typically what we see is something's developed outside of the ag industry and we pull it in and try to utilize it as long as we can until something better comes along. And so it's also trying to have that mindset of, what do we actually need? What's the long-term strategic goal of the technology we're trying to implement and then bringing it back in to say, hey, this is valuable and we can actually do this from a resource standpoint. Yeah, it's almost like we see uh, in agriculture, we see outside technologies that have already been, been kind of developed and messed with and we bring them in and kind of hone them into what we need. Um, but we're not kind of, uh, it doesn't seem like we're creating our own. We're kind of pursuing other other sides and kind of bringing it into our industry. So, uh, absolutely. It, it's going to be interesting to see when finally we kind of get that vertical integration to where we as agriculturists are developing the new technology that we're using. No doubt. Probably the day that we uh, have, everybody has self-guiding tractors and, uh, we're just sitting, sitting in an office somewhere, uh, basically requiring our robots to do all of our work for us. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's a, that's a scary future though, honestly. Yeah. Have you I, seen Terminator? I've, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm you, just kidding. <laughs> have you seen iRobot? Yeah. Oh gosh, dang that, that movie scared me when I was a child, <laughs> but that, no, that's crazy. Have you heard like, um, Elon Musk talk about AI. Oh, it's, it's absolutely crazy. And then I, I'm also a Jimmy Fallon late night fan and oh, he's yeah. had that. I forget uh, the name. Is it, is it Eve? Is that the robot that comes on and talks? I forget her name, but I haven't he's done seen interviews. It on Jimmy. 
oh, you got it's insane. Like she sings with Jimmy and she interacts with Jimmy. It's and she's what it's she's a fully functioning, artificially intelligent robot. It's it's crazy. That's that's insane. It's going to be uh, very interesting to see where it goes in the in the coming years for sure. We went from we went from NSR to DC to <laughs> robots in about five minutes. So hey, that, this is going to be a really great podcast. I'm excited for it. I'm ready. For it. <laughs> I think the best part of it has been. Wait, this isn't going to be on the podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. That's funny. Well, um, after that crazy wild journey, let's talk about you for a little bit. So. Uh, you, well, it's uh, kind of a crazy wild journey at points too, but yeah. we'll, we'll make it work. It's gonna we're gonna make it work, Clay. We're, we we will. But um, so you come from Indiana, uh, on a small little purebred operation. Is that right? Actually, Illinois. Illinois. Um, I, yeah, I I confuse the heck out of people most of the time. They think I'm from Texas, Oklahoma, basically wherever my academic pedigree is. But I actually grew up in Illinois. So okay. Well, we, we like to just forget about that. Yeah, you know, we don't necessarily have the best reputation as far as state government or, or politics or anything like yeah. that. But we have a heck of a pro baseball team there in the Cubs, you know. You sure do. And actually, the Bears <laughs> It only took us, took us 108 years to win another World Series. But you know what? It, it We gave it the good old college try for that That was long. a heck of a run that year. I think everybody yes. was a Cubs fan that year. It, it's hard not to be. Yeah, and Mitchell Trubisky is is doing big things at the at the Bears. If we just well, we got rid of Cody Parkey, so our issues of missing missing game winning field goals are hopefully over. And yeah, uh, I'm I'm optimistic about the future of the Bears as well. Yeah, that was devastating. Uh, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so uh, you come from a small like purebred operation in Illinois. Um, kind of walk me through that growing up on on that uh, operation. Yeah, and it was kind of an interesting dynamic. So I, I, my hometown's really small, about 950 people, and the farm wouldn't support necessarily multiple generations like many farms today. So my mom worked full-time on the farm as well as once we got a little older, worked part-time at a vet clinic, then my dad was an extension agent. But we actually lived in town, and so I always tell people – uh, my kind of goal in life is that whenever, if I'm fortunate enough to have children, I want them to be able to walk out their back door and be able to do chores, which is something I think a lot of people take for granted. So uh, we traveled basically 10 minutes every day to go take care of our livestock and work on the farm. And uh, that's how I grew up. And, and we, we had about uh, in our when we were fully operational with my grandfather, my parents and, and my brother and I, we had about 100 head of purebred shorthorn cattle. Uh, my brother and I would actually be the fifth generation of, of managing purebred livestock on that farm. And then also until uh, the mid 90s, which is when the hog market crashed, uh, my grandfather ran commercial hogs actually out on pasture, which growing up uh, next to Henry County, Illinois, which used to be considered the hog capital of the world. Uh, that was primary production practices. And so when 98 hit, uh, we actually sold out. And the irony of that is that was my first year of 4-H and my, my mom was convinced. She's like, it's taken me 30 years to get hogs off this farm. We're never going to have them again. And of course, as a, as a young kid, I, I said, well, I really want to show pigs. And she said, absolutely not. And uh, I had a great uncle that raised purebred hampshires and he actually had been diagnosed with cancer about uh, three months before that. And he said, Hey, if Clay wants to show hogs, he's going to show hogs. And of course my mom couldn't say no to my uncle skinny of as course. we called him. But, uh, 
But the joke is that he lived uh, seven years after that, so it wasn't as uh, maybe timely as what uh, my mom considered. And that's how I really got my uh, passion and start for the swine industry was was showing at, at the county fair level and then was fortunate enough to meet some people in the local area that were great mentors to me and and, and helped me improve my project to, to end up showing on the, the circuit there in Illinois, the Illinois Club Pig Association and the state fair, and then eventually getting me uh, hooked up with NJSA. And so, uh, you know, my earliest events I remember of NJSA, and I think we may have talked about this the other day, was was going to the World Pork Expo for the first time in 2004. And uh, that was the first year they actually allowed crossbreds to show in the junior show. And I remember uh, we were crossbred gilts had to be penned in the sheep barn. And I remember taking uh, my crossbred gilt there and I think she was like ninth out of 10. It wasn't a very good showing yeah. from our standpoint, but just, I was amazed at that time of the scope of the expo. And I think there was only 120 crossbred gilts that showed up that year. I'd like to say something real quick. I think everybody's first trip to expo is that story getting, <laughs> getting, getting ninth and 10th because no one has any clue what the quality is going to be like. I mean, you hear what the quality is going to be like, but you can't, you don't really know until you actually get there and see, oh my gosh, yeah, I thought my pig was good, but there's 500 more that look exactly like it. It's, it's pretty crazy. I was visiting with someone the other day, and they made a really interesting observation. You know, we, and rightfully so, the Texas majors are kind of considered the standard of quality and, and also in terms of numbers. But they made an interesting observation. They said, you know, Obviously, from a numbers standpoint, a Houston or a San Antonio is gonna is gonna trump about anything. But the pre- presentation and fit and quality of the actual stock is probably as deep at the World Pork Expo as anywhere. And it, and I think about that, and I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, if you think about people traveling from California or Florida or New York or some of the place Arizona, some of yeah. the places they travel. Uh, they're going to make sure they're bringing out their absolute best. It's it's not a uh, it's not necessarily just something they're going to try out. And uh, I thought about that, and I was like, that's that's a pretty interesting observation. And uh, it certainly makes the expo an interesting dynamic. It really does. And just like you said, I mean, people aren't just going to go for the fun of it. I know some people say, oh yeah, we're going to try expo this year, but you're not going to expo. If you don't think that you have a good pig, I, I, I don't see the point in driving all those miles, especially, you know, where I'm from Arizona, if we were going to expo, we at least had to have two that we thought were really, really good. And of course we didn't do anything. Um, I think actually the 2013, uh, world pork expo, a kid from Arizona, kid from my County won the crossbred gilts. Um, so we were pretty proud of that. Uh, but really for, uh, with us. If we didn't have any anything really that good, we we're like, all right, let's just leave the trailer. Let's still go up there, but let's just leave <laughs> the trailer behind because it's it's not really worth it for entries and stuff like that. But before yep. we move on, I wanted to I wanted to kind of go back to you. You were talking about the 1998 uh, pork crash, the market crashed. How old were you when that happened? Well, uh, 
I was actually eight years old, so it was my first year of 4-H. Um, I, I tried. I think most people think I'm a little older than I actually am, which is okay. I, I, I'm actually fine with that. But someday when I'm old, I'll want people to think I'm younger, I suppose. But uh, I was eight years old, so I remember that, and I remember the day we loaded up every, all the hogs, basically, and, and, and shipped them, and that's when they were bringing five cents a pound, and it was it was basically out of necessity. And uh, fortunately, we were diversified. We we ran about, well, we had about 750 acres, which is small in comparison to the Midwest of, of corn and soybeans. But then also we had the cattle to fall back on. And, uh, you know, my brother and my brother and actually most of my family have loved and focused on the purebred cattle side of things. And, and I participated in that, but uh, I've always been a little bit of a black sheep and a little bit of a, what I'd call a change agent. And so uh, the the, the swine industry and the pig thing kind of became my, my passion and my game. And that's what I focused on. And fortunately my dad really enjoyed it too. So I had a support system there and uh, we always joke the the cattle thing was always my mom and my brother and the pig thing was my dad and I. So uh, it was pretty interesting to see how that progressed. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I don't mean to knock your eight year old self, but not a great business plan to jump into an industry <laughs> when it just crashed. No. <laughs> no, no, you know, most of the time when you're eight years old, you're not really super business minded. <laughs> yeah. I remember I got a pretty good talking to from my mom because you're, you know, at the end of the 4 H auction, you're supposed to tell people what you're going to use the money for. And uh, most, you know, if, if you listen to your parents and utilize your coaching, it's like, well, I'm going to reinvest it in my project or, you know, donate it back or utilize it for school. And uh, my response, I, even after the coaching was, I'm going to buy a new Star Wars action figure, which. <laughs> <laughs> well, which one, did, uh, which one did you buy? Oh, uh, well, I think I actually think it was a specialized Darth Vader one, if I remember Ooh. right. But uh, it, a, yeah, I. Uh, I'm sorry. We're going to get off topic here. What's your favorite episode? <laughs> Oh, favorite Star Wars movie? Yeah. Oh, Empire. You can't beat okay, Empire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm with you on that. You you can't beat Empire. Although, I'm intrigued to see where Disney takes... this. Is, we're totally nerding out here, but that's all right. I'm intrigued to see where the Disney takes the franchise, because I thought Rogue One was exceptional. So, I, we'll see. Rogue we'll one see what happens. Of, Rogue One got a lot of bad reviews. I absolutely loved it. And the ending, you can't beat that ending. Oh no! But you, it, it you, was you like the uh, like the newer uh, Star Wars movies. I I've told people I've been waiting for thirty years for uh, for Darth Vader to go medieval on somebody, and he uh, finally did at the end of Rogue One, and I yeah. was pumped. So <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan of Star Wars too. So uh, we we've got that in common a little bit. We nerded out just a little bit, but I'm sure there's people that like Star Wars too. We're not the only ones. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of a cultural phenomenon. I'm sure people will say, "Oh my gosh, this this is turned turned into, you know, Comic-Con 2019 pretty fast." But you <laughs> hey, you got to own what you like. So, it's uh, just like evaluating. You got to own what you like. Exactly. You got to figure out what you like, what you don't like. This, Absolutely. I'm not we're not going to talk about this TV show, but I want to ask you if you like it. Do you like Game of Thrones? I okay, so to be fair, I have not actually watched Game of Thrones, but everyone tells me based on who I am and my personality, I would really enjoy it. So at some point when I'm, you know, not busy traveling the country or maybe I just need to download some on my I 
I haven't watched Game of Thrones. I've heard it's pretty graphic, so I'm a little concerned to watch it on a plane because I get pretty sensitive about that when I'm watching <laughs> stuff on a plane. So uh, maybe I just need to designate some time and sit down and watch Game of Thrones. But I, uh, I really think you do. And if you're if you're watching it on your phone or like a small thing, it's not it's not like graphic a hundred percent of the time in the TV show. There's there's a lot more going on than just graphic uh, stuff, but there is a there is quite a bit of stuff in that show that doesn't need to be seen uh publicly (laughs) understood that's a good way to put it yeah it's a great that's a great segue (laughs) great segue okay so let's talk about state officership (laughs) from game of thrones to to ffa so i i want to know like what yeah winter is coming (laughs) winter winter is coming here's state office (laughs) um what gripped you into ffa so like i'm sure you went into high school um did all the green hand stuff. Were you, were you a green hand officer? Uh, we actually, my high school did not have uh, green hand officers, but uh, I think I shared a story and I'll probably share a story again today about adversity. And my goal as a freshman was to be the star green hand. And I got, I got thoroughly throttled for star green hand. Oh, I, yeah. I was not selected. And I thought it was kind of this, uh, uh, you know, this rite of passage, I had to be star green hand if I was going to be successful. And, and I was not. And, uh, it really, I tend to be motivated by competition, ironically enough. And so when I got beat for that, I was like, okay, I'm going to go out and, and just put the throttle on people when I can in FFA. And that was really a motivation for me. I, I did creed and, and those type of things, but I, I was always intrigued and enjoyed the networking aspect of FFA and getting to meet people. And especially I feel like, it, you know, in, in Illinois, I wouldn't necessarily say FFA and livestock projects are closely aligned, but it's really fun when you can, those two worlds cross and uh, getting to see people in you know, a competitive environment like crop judging or soil judging or uh, public speaking that you interact with when you're showing livestock. And so it was kind of neat to, to go through that experience and, and interact with those folks. And I got to my senior year and uh, you know, I, I decided that I wanted to pursue an officer position within the state level. And, uh, no one from my high school had ever ran for state office. No one from my high school had ever been elected. And I really wasn't sure how things were going to go. Um, I was basically, I was at that point, I was planning on going to a junior college. Uh, I was kind of between Lakeland and Blackhawk at that point. And, uh, both had really great recruiting classes coming in and, and I decided I was going to run for state office. And I knew if I got elected, I'd have to take a year off school and, uh, it wasn't really an easy decision for me, but uh, really enjoyed going through the process and was very fortunate to be elected as state FFA president. Yeah, that's awesome. And and what a process uh, from I, I like how you talked about adversity and you, you didn't get star green hand. So you were like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to make it to the top then. Do you so you said you had a you have a older brother or younger brother? Yes, I have an older brother who is really successful in FFA in his in his own right. I mean, he was uh, second in the state for his proficiency area. He was a section officer, which is our equivalent of basically the level of uh, being the next level down from being a state FFA officer. State FFA degree, American FFA degree, was super competitive, was on livestock judging teams collegiately. And so uh, he kind of set the standard. And, and today he's a veterinarian, so I always joke. I was like, well, you'll always surpass me in terms of degrees because you got that DVM <laughs> yeah. in front of your name. Uh, you're the one I have to refer to as Dr. Zwilling now. So, uh, But, 
you know, I always, I always joked with him. He set that standard. And, and as the younger sibling, I felt like I had to go just a little bit above it. And that's a, that's a really high standard to set. And, and fortunately I was able to, to, uh, to reach and surpass some of those standards he set for me just based on, uh, that drive and, and will to, to work hard and, and, and essentially this kind of inner drive of excellence. I think that that like, that's a key part of growing up. If you have an older sibling, I've noticed this a lot. If you have an older sibling, that's pretty successful. It either makes or breaks the younger sibling. It's either, it either drives them to want to be better than that person or it kind of slows them down. They're like, Oh, well, I don't think I'll ever be to that standard. And I, I admire you for like taking it as, you know what? Like he set this high standard, but I'm a, I'm going to do better. I think that's the way that everyone should do it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love my brother to death, but we are both very different people. And I, we, you know, he's very, he, he's a veterinarian. He's very yeah. analytical. He's very meticulous. He's very detail oriented. And I've always been more of a, of a people person. I've always been more of the high level, big picture thinker, but uh, you know, people reach success and, and view their lives differently. And, and that's what, you know, variety is the spice of life, as they say. And, you know, you can't, can't necessarily say your roadmap to success is X, Y, or Z, but you have to adapt with who you are and, and move forward. And and I think that's what I was very fortunate and blessed to do, especially having a, a network of people that were supportive of me. I had a great ag teacher. My parents were very supportive and uh, a great, you know, great local community, very rooted in agriculture that, that made things possible. Yeah. And uh, let's, um, let's just go in after state office. Um, then you kind of go into Lakeland or you, you told me you, you did run for national office right after state office or did you take a year in between? I actually, I took a year. Uh, so I went to, I thought I'd be better suited and maybe a little more mature and, and gain a little bit more of a college broader experience. So I finished my officership as we refer to it. And then I did my freshman year at Lakeland and I was on actually on Illinois state 4-H team that uh, won a national championship that year. I always joke, I'm pretty sure I was the oldest 4-H'er to, to ever compete because I was just right on the edge of aging out because I'd taken that year off school. But um, did that experience, which was tremendous, and then went to Lakeland and was on the judging team there. And it was going into my sophomore year of, of judging when I ran for national FA office. And so comes the biggest fail- failure of your life. Yeah, and, and, and yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry no. to put it like that. <laughs> let's let's package this as clay's huge failure <laughs> well and hopefully hopefully it still remains the biggest failure but i'm sure there'll be other uh failures along the way but no i i i look back on that experience and i i tell people if there was a moment that what was the catalyst of where i am today and it was not getting national ffa office because if i had gotten it i mean i'm sure my trajectory would have been extremely good. It just would have been different. And, you know, I ran, I went through the process. I was selected as a finalist. And then ultimately I I always joke, I was like, I'm pretty sure on RFD TV, there was a look of just sheer disappointment that was seen by over a hundred thousand people that were watching. (laughs) But, but, uh, you know, it, it really, it really bothered me. And, and I think, I think probably every point in our life, I think it's important that we experience failure, whether that's in the show ring, whether that's in your professional career, uh, wherever it is, 
it's important for you to fail. And, and a, I always remember a, a quote, I believe it was Joe Paterna said this, failure is never final and success or failure is never fatal. Success is never final. And so I think that that kind of phrase is, is important. And, you know, it, it really bothered me. I mean, I was, I'm not going to say I was full on depressed, but I was, I was not myself. I, I couldn't focus. I really struggled through that process, but fortunately I had a great livestock judging team to come back to. And, and that's really what fueled my passion again for, for livestock evaluation. And I was very blessed to be on a competitive team at Lakeland. Uh, you know, we were considered kind of in the top three teams that year. We won the national barrow show by 89 points. I was very lucky to be the high individual at that contest. And, uh, you know, it always goes back to sometimes in life, uh, your, your plans change and you have to be willing to adapt and, and move on and move upward. And, uh, again, it's, it's the people and the experiences and how you, how you approach those situations, I think ultimately determine your success and, uh, was very lucky that I had a great network of people to work with through that. And after that process and, and not making it that first time, did you have any inkling to run again? I had actually aged out. So that was kind okay. of the risk of, that was kind of the risk of waiting the year you, you run and not get it and you have the opportunity to run again, or you wait a year and run and not get it and you're done. Uh, and that's what I did. I, I ran and I had actually, this was my, you know, I'm going to swing for the fences and see what happens moment. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd aged out at that point. So, uh, then I decided it was time to move on. And, and I always, I've, I, I've been very lucky to help coach some young kids through FFA, whether it's public speaking or running for national office. And I always say everyone's journey and in, in 4-H and FFA ends but it ends at different times. And sometimes you get to choose when it ends and sometimes uh, it picks when it ends for you. And regardless, you've just got to cherish the experience and, and take the lessons you've learned from the organization and, and move onward. Exactly. And I, I, uh, one of my really good friends, his name is Bryce Clough. He's from Arizona. Um, but he was a state officer. Uh, he went to the U of A. He's at Texas tech now, but he got national office. He thinks he's better than us now. So he goes to tech and whatever. <laughs> but, well, I mean, they are in the final four. So. They are, but he, he ran but most people from Texas tech didn't know they had a basketball team until a couple weeks. Ago, exactly. So, to be fair. They didn't even know who the head coach was, <laughs> but he, he ran the first time, uh, didn't make it was absolutely devastated and then ran a second time and eventually made it. And, um, I will never forget the look that he had on his face. I mean, we were, um, I'm in a fraternity with him, uh, here at U of A or I was, he's gone now, but we were all in the front room, uh, watching the national convention and we were going crazy when he was going up there. It was such an awesome experience, but Oh, it's it, yeah, it's awesome. It, it's great to see kind of people come back from that. And unfortunately you kind of aged out, but eventually like that was almost kind of a good thing because it kind of pushed you out of it. It was like, you know what, you, you need to be done. You have other things to do. I always, I always joke that sometimes, uh, we all get the blue and gold fever and some people get vaccinated and some people never do. And, <laughs> uh, fortunately, uh, fortunately I, I had a pretty solid three to four boosters during the national FFA convention <laughs> that year. Gosh, dang, that's funny. I've never heard that before, but I like that. That's uh, hilarious. But did you win, did you win Louisville at Lakeland? We did not. Thanks did for bringing not. up a really good subject. No. <laughs> um, we, uh, we, uh, 
we were really successful. We had never lost a contest going into Louisville. So we'd won American Royal, Barrow Show, Tulsa, and we ended up third at uh, Louisville. I think we were third or fourth at Denver. Uh, We kind of made a rising back there at uh, the Dixie National. And then uh, Butler and and Redlands kind of put the hurt on us at Houston again. So uh, we started off really strong, but uh, struggled there towards the end. But um, it was still a really positive experience. And uh, we, you know, the team, again, any type of judging team or team you're on, the relationships you build are, are just un- unmatched. So oh, that was yeah. probably the most important value. And, and, uh, also getting to be on John Althaus's last judging team. Uh, that was, that was something I always joke that, you know, basically he got done with us. I was like, man, I can't handle this anymore. I've got to move <laughs> on. So, uh, that was, that was also fun to be part of that experience and, and go through that part of, I mean, John had been coaching for almost 20 years at that point. And so to go through that process, with them was pretty special that's awesome and when, when you were in junior college um kind of going to those contests obviously you're looking towards senior college most people that are judging in junior college they want to move up they want to get to that next level while you were at those contests were you kind of scoping out schools that you wanted to go to or were you kind of talking to schools what who were you looking at uh, moving I, on into senior college yeah, so I kind of decided if I got National FA office, I was going to go to University of Illinois and, and stay in state. And when I didn't, I really kind of broadened my horizons. And I was fully committed to not going to Oklahoma State because that's where my brother went to school. And I'd always been intrigued by Texas A&M. And uh, I was looking at – I mean, I was still looking at OSU. And I actually the – other, the other thing I tell people, which – Again, you know, you have that moment. I visited Iowa State five times from the time I was a junior in high school till my sophomore year of college. And I, I, I really liked Iowa State. I just never had that, that clicking moment that you have when you go to a school. And uh, I still respect the heck out of that university. I think they're tremendous. Um, but they kind of fell out for me and it was between OSU and A&M and my OSU visit, frankly, was more of a courtesy, uh, because my brother went to school there, but I was really intrigued. Uh, Dr. Mark Johnson was the judging coach at the time. And he, all he did was send me a handwritten note after I'd visited him with him at the American Royal and said, Hey, you know, if you're interested in OSU, we'd love to love for you to come and visit. And so it got down to the spring of my sophomore year there at Lakeland and, uh, I was pretty well in my mind I was going to go to Texas A&M, and I went there, and I had a great visit, absolutely loved it, and told my dad, I said, man, OSU is going to have to be really good tomorrow if, if I'm going to end up going to school there, and long story short, uh, I had an absolutely bla- absolute blast there on my on my visit, and uh, Mark Johnson kind of put me in the right, the right frame of mind and put me in the right contact with people. Uh, I got to meet Tyler Norvell, who's the executive director of OIE for the first time and has become a really close mentor of mine that night. Uh, Got to meet a lot of the alumni that have gone through that program. And it was a really tough decision for me. And I'd kind of decided in my mind, if I wanted to pursue a master's, wherever I didn't go for my undergrad, I'd go for my master's. And I uh, sat down and kind of put the pluses and minuses of both places. And when I got out of my mind, the only reason I didn't want to go to SU is because my brother went there. Uh, that's where I committed it. And I ended up in Stillwater uh, for the rest of my collegiate career, and my undergrad. Now, do you, you talked about that note that uh, the OSU coach gave you at, at Kansas city when you're in junior college. Um, how, how much do you think that affected you in terms of picking OSU? Was it, was that it, pretty personable? 
It, it was. I actually still have that note, and uh, I keep it. And, and you know, Dr. Brett Kaysen, uh, as, as a lot of people know in the pork industry, he actually spoke at NYLC there last week and talked about the importance of a handwritten thank you. And uh, those things do do mean a lot. And it was I'm not going to say it was the deciding factor, but it certainly didn't hurt. It definitely helps when somebody is kind of on your side and, and pursuing you and and saying, hey, I would really like you to come here. That definitely helps rather than like, oh, hey, come visit our campus in an email or something like that. Yep. And I mean, and, and not to take away from A&M, I mean, they were sending me hats and shirts and all kinds of stuff. And, and I mean, that was as a college kid, you're like, man, this is sweet. I'm going to wear, wear some A&M gear when I'm walking around campus and, oh, yeah. and those type of things. But, uh, you know, ultimately I just, I just felt like OSU was the place. And, and frankly, as I look back, it was probably the best decision I could have made. And you had a very successful year there. You not only did you graduate with a, a bachelor's in animal science and ag ed, you double majored, didn't you? That's correct. But you did that and you were the national champion on the livestock judging team that year, 2012, right? Yes. We yeah. had a, we had a very good year there that year. And, uh, you know, it was, again, you talk about adversity. We didn't have, uh, we didn't have what I would say to be the most glowing spring. We lost Denver to A&M by a point. We lost San Antonio, I think by three, we lost Houston by three and, uh, we were tired of getting second. So we're like, we're going to up our game in the fall. And we rolled into the national bear show and got beat by Western by one <laughs> and, uh, narrow margins are zero fun. And oh, so yeah. we, uh, we kind of stepped back and, and I, not that we weren't working hard before, but I think we had a collective team goal of, of being successful in the fall. And, uh, we kind of reevaluated our plan and approach and we're very fortunate. We won uh, Tulsa state fair, the American Royal, and then the national champion contest in Louisville back to back to back. So, uh, you know, we, uh, I, I kind of liken us a little bit to the, the Philadelphia Eagles there that won a few years ago <laughs> in the Super Bowl. Like the Eagles have, have been the, the bridesmaid and never the bride for yeah. so long. And, and, uh, we were able to, to get it done. And, uh, it was, it was definitely a, a fun year and, and something that I'll always cherish and reflect on as an experience. Did you get to, did you and your team get to walk on the, uh, basketball court did they introduce you at, at a basketball game we did yeah nice. it was actually so osu this last year won the, for the first time what was called the triple crowns so they yep. won horse meats and livestock well our year we won we had won horse and livestock and meats was second so we recognized the 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 those three teams our year as well on the basketball court which was really cool uh and I'll always remember there was this, I don't, I don't know who she was. It wasn't like it was Boone Pickens wife or anybody like that, but this old lady came up to us and she said, congratulate. She shook my hand. She said, congratulations. What you've done for this university is equally as important as what those boys are doing on that basketball court. And that was like, wow, this is a really cool place and a place that appreciates what we do. And, uh, it was, it was super fun and, and really exciting to, to go through that process. That's awesome. And the fact that some kind of higher up gal at OSU came to you guys, shook each of your hands and said, hey, you brought honor to this institution. That that would probably almost feel better than actually winning. That actually uh, contributed. Pretty close. Pretty, pretty close. I mean, winning, winning is, winning <laughs> yeah. is definitely like sitting at Louisville, getting your name called. That's the dream. But yeah. and. 
and no, it was, it was definitely, you know, understanding there's a bigger purpose and that you represent a university and you represent a place and, and you're big. So part of something bigger is absolutely awesome. And you were an all American. Yes. Guys, I he, was very, he, he's got the smarts. He, he, he can evaluate livestock. Look at this guy. He's got two degrees. No wonder you're wifed up already. Nah. <laughs> yeah. It's because I learned how to give good reasons at OSU. I was uh, quite I, salesman. I guess so. <laughs> but, well, uh, no. And, Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, too, that, and I think we talked about this the other day, the, how we went about winning Louisville was a little unconventional, as I as I always joke. And you talk about things lining up and things happening for a reason. Uh, we won in 2012. We were the 12th team in the 112 years of collegiate judging to win the American Royal and Louisville back-to-back. And we judged on November 12th. And, uh, after we did all that and I kind of went back and evaluated everything, I was like that this is just kind of freaky. This is a little, little, little weird, but, uh, we, um, we won sheep, we won hogs, we did not place in the top five in cattle and we won reasons. And we came off the floor about 30 points behind uh, can or not Kansas state, Colorado state. And, uh, we ended up winning by nine. And so it was, uh, I always joke they're going to make a 30 for 30 about the – they're going to call it the team that wasn't supposed to be or something like that yeah. <laughs> on ESPN and, and feature feature the 2012 OSU livestock judging team. But it was uh, it was definitely a really humbling experience and a great group of competitors that year. It was a really strong field. A&M was very good. Uh, Tech was good. A&M was good. Colorado State was solid throughout the year and really snuck up there towards the fall like we did and ended up reserve national champions. That was a really good team. And and so amongst that field, Western was good, of course. And so uh, amongst that field of, of folks, it was really humbling to, to end up bringing the title back to Stillwater. Well, yeah, I, I, it's it's just such an incredible feeling to kind of bring that pride back with you. Um, and And you guys – won the Royal and won Louisville, which really doesn't happen a lot. So that that's impressive in itself. And our vans broke down on the way back from Louisville west to St. Louis. So oh. we had to, we had to, you know, I was joking like, Hey, we've got the silvery pern and the bronze bull. Let's maybe like leave the vans and make sure we get these uh, <laughs> decade yeah. old awards uh, in this rental minivan. And we'll worry about our, we'll worry about the OSU vans later. I'm pretty sure we can recoup those. <laughs> Well, I think um, I think uh, I went to a Connors camp when I was in high school, um, and I think that I saw your picture. It might it must have been your team because that's a, about right around the time when I went to that camp, and it was a picture of you guys out on the court at OSU, and that's yep. what that's what really made me. I was like, oh gosh, these are these guys are superstars. Like I think I want to do this. So your your team uh, might have made me pursue. Uh, livestock judging. I wasn't, I wasn't as good as you guys, but I still love the experience. Well, if, if we are a little part of your success, we will, we will, we'd love to be a part of that. That's awesome. That's <laughs> a cool story. Perfect. Um, so you, you have a fantastic, uh, career at OSU. Um, and then finally you're like, all right, well, I went, did my undergrad, uh, at OSU. Now I got to go do my master's at A&M. Um, yeah. And, and I wasn't, I wasn't set on doing a master's at that point. And actually it's kind of where my journey at NSR starts. Uh, I applied at Blaine Evans had been the summer intern that, that summer. And, 
uh, Ralph Doak had retired and that Eastern region field rep position was open. And I, I pretty well was certain that Blaine would get it, but I wanted to get my foot in the door and at least introduce myself. And so I applied for that position and, uh, was not selected. And, uh, at that point I said, well, you know, I'm, I could go into a career full time or I could go ahead pursue my degree and, and get a master's. And that's where I learned a really important lesson. I share this with people all the time. Don't just go get a master's for the sake of getting a master's. Uh, and don't go get a master's just because you don't know what you want to do with your life. Because I, I, I think that sometimes we fall trap of staying in school when we, when we are a little, uh, maybe a little hindered or maybe a little concerned about whether we're going to get a full-time position. But I also don't know if just staying in grad school is necessarily the right answer either. And, you know, I, 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 pursued my master's because very strategically I wanted to be able to be at a university or a community college. And I also thought from an industry perspective, I could start off at a, a little higher level than maybe entry level because I would have done research, written a thesis, done those things. And uh, fortunately, I'd made a connection when I made my undergrad visit at A&M with a gentleman that many people who uh, show cattle know, Dr. John Rayfield and, and Dr. Chris Gaggs. And uh, they were pretty big advocates to get me to A&M. And I, I remember I kind of made the decision late. Uh, I started in January of 14 and I'd made the decision basically in December. And uh, the story, I, I was actually telling it this morning to a friend. Um, it The winter of 2014 in the Midwest was awful. I don't know how many people listening will remember it, but it was literally negative 50 when I left my house. Oh, my. Uh I-44 through Missouri was iced shut, so I took 80 across to uh, Des Moines, and then I drove 35 from Des Moines, Iowa to Waco, and then got off there in Waco and pulled into College Station. It didn't break zero until I crossed the Texas line, and I pulled into College Station, Texas with salt marks all down the side of my car. I was wearing my car hearts and my uh, winter <laughs> coat, and it was 75 degrees in College oh, Station, gosh. Texas, and I pulled into this apartment complex where I was going to live. There was a palm tree, and there was a girl in a tank top walking her dog. And I said, I just made the best decision of my yeah. life. Nothing makes you feel more at home than driving away from a snowstorm and going to 75-degree weather. It was literally a, a over a 100-degree shift in temperature in about a 16-hour period. And That's I was like, this is amazing. That's crazy. You, you can't get that unless you're going to South Texas or Arizona or New Mexico or something like that. Yeah. Because that's, yep. that's how it was when I went up to Wyoming for junior college. Coming back from that was a dream because I just spent that spring up there. And it, I mean, in Wyoming, it's still snowing in April and May uh, on occasion. And just driving back down to Arizona when it's already 98 degrees, it's it's a trip. The second coldest I've ever been in my life was judging pre-Denver in Wyoming, uh, in Juco. That oh, yeah. was, it was exceptionally cold. <laughs> you go to, uh, like Duellos or something? No, uh, I think we went to, uh, there was a big sheep workout. I'm trying to remember if it was at Laramie or if it was at Casper. We judged mm -hmm. wool sheep for like, I don't, it was, it was a while. It was yeah. more wool sheep than I cared to judge in a, that amount of time, but. Yeah, it was probably Laramie then, but, but no, that's a yeah. It's it's a cold place up there, especially during that winter workout. It's yeah, no it's doubt, a little chilly. Um, but what what did you end up getting your masters in at A and M? 
Yeah. So I majored in uh, the long, the long version is agricultural leadership, education, and communications, but my specialty was in agricultural teaching education. So uh, basically I was on track to, to go and teach ag ed at a university or community college with that master's and IT aid classes. But my research was primarily focused around kind of two areas uh, I did some professional development for teachers and research on youth livestock projects and SAEs. But then my actual thesis was on uh, exploratory SAEs, which was at the time a new SAE category that National FFA and the Ag Ed Council were trying to utilize for urban programs or younger members that maybe didn't have access to, to doing what we consider a traditional SAE. Will you, will you, so, explain, will you go into more detail as to what it is? Uh, exploratory SAE would be kind of yeah and so I joke a little bit that after I did this research I think the council put the kibosh on exploratory SAE so I'm not <laughs> even sure if that area works now but you have you have essentially your entrepreneurship your placement and your research and then they'd added exploratory which was basically internships or job careers or uh, basically, it was an entry-level SAE to then get you to a further SAE area, but it was going to be – you could manage it just like you would your normal SAE experience, uh, but it was more high-level exploratory and didn't have the, the capital investment that you would in typically one of those other projects. So, so it was a little uh, bit smaller scale. Yeah, and, and where the real advantage was, was – and kind of where I focused my research on it was – implementing it in urban settings. So you have a, we'll use an example. You have a, a young man that lives in an apartment and doesn't have the opportunity to really manage or have the resources. So their exploratory SAE experience could be doing a, a work project or doing an exploratory career project at a, a flower shop down from their apartment. Or uh, an example, if you want to do an ag communications exploratory, you may go intern at a radio station or something like that. Oh, nice. Um, but again, uh, it was really interesting at the time, and, and what the project actually was, was getting perceptions of whether this was going to take off. And the ag ed industry, at least the people we, we uh, surveyed, were really on board with it, and uh, it was pretty interesting to go through and, and use statistical analysis and, and do research like that. Yeah, definitely. That sounds uh, like an interesting side of, uh, of FFA, of the organization, and like you said, I don't know um, if that's still being used today, but it seems like a good kind of gateway to get kids involved in FFA, uh, on a smaller scale. So they don't have as, like you said, as, as much capital invested. Exactly. It was a way to get more participation in SAE by, you know, it, it's, it, it can be intimidating saying, Hey, you've got to do a record book. You've got to get so many hours. You have to have so much money invested. And, and frankly, a lot of young people in FFA, uh, don't have those don't have those means, but SAE is still important. And I I argue of the of the three circle model, it's the one we probably need to focus on as much as far as career development and building. And so exploratory SAEs was, were kind of a means to an end to get people involved in in SAE. Yeah, that, and how much research did you? So you did that for your uh, like the last year? Is that when you did your research, or did or did you do the full two years just researching that? I, I did what I'm calling an abridged master's program. So I actually did it in a year, year and a half. So I started in January in 14 and, and graduated in May of 15. I uh, did summer, basically did summer courses the whole way through uh, the summer of 14. 
Um, and so my research really began that previous fall, defended that spring and then graduated that, that summer. So, okay. And then you graduate and you're out in the world, finally done with school. You don't want to get your doctorate, do you? Uh, at that point I was, I was fairly well done with school. Yeah. So you're, <laughs> was... you're basically, you're looking for a job to kind of settle down and you, you kind of get in line with farm credit. Yep. And I think you kind of alluded to it earlier, but the, the part of the story I'd be remiss, the best part of my master's, I always say was my missus. Oh, so yeah, I met my yeah. wife. Yeah. I met my wife my very first day at Texas A&M, 60,000 some undergrad students. And, uh, the very first person I meet turns up to be my wife. I always joke with her. I should have spent a little more time in the SIF band before I, uh, <laughs> before I picked her, but, uh, I'm no, so glad uh, you brought that up. I, I, I was going to be a little upset if I, for, if I forgot to have you bring that up. Cause I think that is a, an excellent story that you see this good looking gal walking on campus at a crosswalk and it just happens to be the person that you're going to just spend the rest of your life with. You just don't know yet. Yeah. She was walking across the crosswalk and I was like, man, uh, the scenery at Texas AM is AM is pretty solid. And three, <laughs> three days later, I'm sitting with my back to the office door in, in the, my grad school office. And this young lady comes in and says, hi, I'm Deanna. And I turn around and I go, Hey, you're the girl at the crosswalk. And she's like, Oh yeah. I'm sure she probably thought it was a little creepy at first that I remembered, but uh, just like good livestock, sometimes they're striking and, and you remember and they're hard to get out of your mind. And long story short, uh, that young lady is my wife today. So, Hey, when, when one catches your eye, you just got to go with it. It's a gut feeling. Yeah. And I always joke, I say, you know, and I also had to work extra hard because I actually removed a Texan from the Republic of Texas. So, Which is uh, hard to do. Yeah, it's it's definitely not an easy task. <laughs> but you went that's you, that, that's when those reasons and critical thinking skills come into come into exactly. play. Exactly. That's what all that that's what all that judging brought you is yep. convincing convincing her that your idea to move back up to the Midwest uh and work for farm credit would be the best option. Yeah, you know, cold winters, bad tax structures, poor state <laughs> government in Illinois. Why should we move there? Well, it's a really good opportunity. <laughs> how, how many governors have, have gone to prison in Illinois? Uh, the Let's see. At least two, maybe three that yeah. I'm aware of. It's got to be like the last like three of them have gone you know, to the prison. Jo- the joke is that after after they get done serving the state government, they make our license plates in prison. So. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but you move back up there. Uh, go work for farm credit, um, which is kind of a change of pace for you, right? You you weren't really um, kind of versed in the financial side. No, I uh, you know my background was animal science, I get, and and basically took one accounting financial class in college, and to be frank, absolutely detested it. But uh, went into farm credit in a marketing role, was the director of. Uh, marketplace education and development and basically my role it was a brand new role and my job was to be the liaison to 4-h and ffa in our 60 county coverage area as well as provide educational programs for young beginning small farmers and then kind of the third tier of what i did which i thought i was going to absolutely hate but i loved was doing all of our marketplace research so all of our customer satisfaction surveys and those type of things uh and so for my from from where I am today, the the greatest asset I learned there was just some basic financial acumen and and learning and and understanding what we really go through in agriculture in terms of 
uh, capital needs, uh, being having strong liquidity, uh, you know, making sure and understanding interest rate breaks down, cap, you know, calculating working capital. Uh, you know, I'm just dropping all this vernacular that I act like I'm an expert in it. now. But, but, but uh, uh, you know, it was really it was really great. And uh, I always share that the easiest way to learn is to have to teach it. And so these were things that I, were totally foreign to me. But but having to go through and teach it to younger farmers, I was forced to learn it. And it, it, it it's proven to be a huge asset moving forward. No pun intended. Assets, <laughs> liabilities. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> You're throwing out all kinds of stuff. You're pretty smart, aren't you? Oh, uh, not really. I'm just I'm just trying to make the podcast entertaining. I like it. I'm not, I'm not generally that that exciting. So, well, I I find it hard to believe that you you said you weren't going to be interested in the market research, but that your personality seems to me, and you said it yourself, is you're kind of a people person. So why did you think you were kind of go into that, um, not liking it if you were kind of dealing with customers, seeing what they like, seeing what they need? Why did you think you well, were going to like that? Well, because it was really data data analyzing. Oh, okay. I, I would I would I would set up surveys and send those out and look at the population and figure the you know standard deviation and, and calculate the mean and, and and I actually loved it. I love analyzing data and, and seeing how we can utilize data to better better make events and make things better. And that's one of the things that I've been really strongly. Uh, passionate about at NSR is trying to do some surveys. And, you know, I think that we probably are about at a time within the association that we probably need to do some type of membership survey and find out what the pulse is and what are the needs of the membership, which a lot of that was done in the long range strategic plan. But a lot of that love and excitement for that comes from my days at farm credit. And, uh, you know, it, it's always interesting to, to, to collect and, and synthesize data because obviously in any, in any type of, of data set, you're going to have your extremes, right? You have yep. your people that, that love whatever you do so much that it almost seems unrealistic. And then you have the people, no matter what you do, they're not going to be happy. And, uh, you know, when you put it and quantify it into to numbers and percentages, it's really interesting to get kind of a broad picture of where you're at as an association. Exactly. And, and I think that that has definitely carried over what you learned at Farm Credit is definitely carried over into into your position now at NSR first uh I'm coming over and uh, and taking over Brian Arnold's position as as the vice president and then um now uh just a year and a half two years later you're sitting in the CEO's position so obviously you learned some great great skills at Farm Credit to help you kind of move up the ladder at a very fast pace and, and probably the greatest thing that I've taken from my experience at Farm Credit was the importance of building a culture in the people you work with. And, and that's one thing that, you know, even when I came on in, in the VP role is, is establishing a culture and establishing priorities that I think are important. And uh, moving forward, I think that that's going to be critical for the success of the NSR. That's something really I learned at Farm Credit, uh, the importance of investing in your people and making sure that uh, – you know, there's a there's a phrase I believe it was Southwest deemed that uh, you know people say the customer is always first, and their philosophy is the employees are first because if the employees are your top priority, the customers will get taken care of. Exactly. And I, I I really believe in that philosophy and uh, trying to implement that philosophy now at the NSR and, and providing that kind of strategic direction. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. How how has been? Um, you kind of just stepped your foot into the CEO's position. Um, with Mike Paul leaving and, 
uh, how has that been kind of getting into that position, figuring out how the culture is and then figuring out where you want it to be? Has it, is it going to change a lot? Do you think, or is it pretty set right now? Well, uh, one thing Mike always said that I think is extremely true is one of the best things about breed association work is tradition, but also one of the worst things about breed association work is tradition. Is tradition, yeah. And and you know, just by nature, I'm somebody that's a change agent. I I challenge the status quo, and oftentimes I've needed to kind of reel that back in. But uh, we're trying to change some things culturally. We're we're excited about some of those things, and the reality is too. I mean, it's just the world we live in. I mean people are constantly connected so they can do their work on their phone. They can email They're in constant interaction with folks. And, uh, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, we have to be willing to adapt and, and be ready to move into that changing climate. That's awesome. And I think everybody's really excited with, um, kind of to just to see some new blood, uh, with the association, it's going to be great to see the changes coming up already. Um, as most people saw the, uh, NSR email blast, you guys are going to start registering, uh, crossbreds, uh, which is crazy. I know everybody's been talking about it for, for a while now, but you guys are kind of finally pulling the trigger on it. Uh, walk me through what that process was like. Yeah. So anytime you, uh, implement a new initiative, people are usually either a little skeptical, they're either excited or skeptical. And uh, the unique thing about registering crossbreds is we really felt like we're at a time in our industry where it's value added for our membership. And so uh, the thing that I think is exciting and, and probably we haven't done a good enough job of promoting or thinking about is we're get really basically getting to establish a breed in its own sense. Uh, so when our forefathers began establishing purebred livestock lines, it really started with just tracking heritage. And that's what we're going to be able to do with registering crossbreds and taking that information and providing value to the membership and be able to track that X sow was in this pedigree however many times and has had that kind of influence within crossbreeding schemes is going to be extremely unique. And the other component I think that we had talked about the other day was tracking and having that data to utilize in show programs and, and use, utilize it no matter what show it is across the country. Uh, that information is going to be readily available and hopefully provide value to the breeders and exhibitors. I like your idea. You you mentioned it the other day, how um, maybe one day, uh, and it's crazy that, that you're saying that you're going to kind of start a, a breed association, which I think is absolutely true. Um, but you said one day you're going to just be able to pull out your phone and point it at a pig in the show ring and you'll you'll be able to kind of see the heritage with – uh, an RFD a tag or a chip of some kind. But I think the, the technological advancements uh, that are going to come of this is going to be pretty crazy. Well, and since we spoke the other day, the really interesting part is there is a uh, there's some research being done with facial recognition and sow lines. So being able to utilize either a camera or a app on a phone to recognize basically the face of a sow or a guilt and being it like, can you imagine if you just held your phone up and were able to scan a sow and her pedigree information pulls up on your phone from facial recognition? I mean, that's, 
we went from technology to Star Wars to Game of Thrones to OSU athletics to now <laughs> facial recognition of hogs. And it's pretty, pretty wild that we have that potential technology coming down the pipeline in the next 10 to 15 years. It's going to be absolutely incredible and it's going to change. It's going to shake the industry to the core, I think, and it's going to change a lot of things. Um, but it's, it's going to absolutely do better because I think it, this is going to make it so accessible for all the information that breeders need that, that maybe they don't have at, at all times. Because right, I mean, we, with these crossbreds nowadays, sure, I, I, I mean, it's said on paper that this is what it is. But kind of with this registering, now people can actually know for sure what's happening, what's going on. Right, and it's important too to know that it's 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 not mandatory. It's completely voluntary at this point. And this is how you have to start programs. But you know, I visit with a lot of people that are excited, and and again, I think you have to look at it from a value added perspective. If I'm, you know, if I'm someone who has a a sow that's been influential within crossbreeding schemes or a specific boar that you can trace back and and is in the pedigree of all these winners, you can say, hey, look at the value added from this genetic line and and there's people that utilize purebred breeding theories and and strategies in their crossbreeding systems there's a reason why you know some some lines get lined up in crossbreeding schemes and you know being able to track and and utilize that data because we are in a data-driven world right now and anytime we can provide members with data to to be successful is going to be critical moving forward i agree it's going to be it's going to be pretty interesting how, how it goes. And I know, I mean, we've said this so many times throughout this entire conversation, but just the the impact that technology is going to have on this industry is insane. And it's unfathomable, I think. I don't think, I think we have a lot of ideas in our minds right now of what's going to happen in the future. But ultimately, we have no idea what's what's about to happen. Oh, I mean, just, just think, I mean, really... 10 years ago, we didn't really know the capability of the iPhone and now everyone has a smartphone. Exactly. Uh, and you know, we're, we're looking at things like, Oh, these earbuds are super exciting. Well, now they don't have cords. And, uh, I saw a thing on Facebook the other day where it's a, it's basically like your Fitbit or a wrist where your phone is hologrammed onto your arm. So you don't have to actually carry a phone. So it can just be on your wrist and, wrist and you can click your apps and do those things. And it's it's amazing where we'll be in the next five to ten years, I think, from a tech perspective. It should be pretty great. Are you are you taking a right or a left right now or what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take take a left-hand turn. I'm like, come on, Clay, take a left already. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> taking a left-hand turn. This is the future. We're taking a left. <laughs> You're in a Tesla? You're in a self-driving car or what? Yeah, you know it. <laughs> NSR pays for it? Uh no, not so much. <laughs> no, we, but... Weekend weekend time, buddy. Weekend time. Weekend time. No, but that's great. And um that that's basically uh kind of all all the information that I wanted to talk to you about. Um uh I'm glad that we kinda we tried this uh a couple days ago, um, but you were driving through Iowa and it was kind of bad service, so I'm glad that we got a uh, a second chance at it. And I think, I honestly think this one was better. Well, you know, it, we gave it the good old second time, you know, sometimes I remember uh, before Louisville and 4-H team, I gave a steer set and it was absolutely atrocious. And my coach turned to me and said, Hey, 
not many times in life do you get a second chance. So let's try this a second time and see if we can do better. (laughs) And uh, the second time I gave it, I think it was significantly better. So we're going to just go ahead and chalk this up the same way. Good. Well, I remember uh, uh, texting Kaylee right after Kaylee Bontrager. Yep. And I was like, hey, I just had a really, really good uh, interview with Clay, but the whole thing was uh, uh, like choppy. And she was like, well, you're going to have to do it again. I'm like, yeah. I know. <laughs> They'll have the whole thing over again, but no, I'm glad that we got to sit down and I think that I uh, I think that um you are a great person to talk to and it's going to be very exciting to see you in that uh CEO position of an NSR. I know that I'm an advocate for you and a lot of people around the country are excited to see um you do great things at or- at that organization. No pressure, but big 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 shoes to fill so well you you went into that uh organization with big shoes to fill with with arnie so i'm sure i always i always say big metaphorical shoes small literal (laughs) shoes yeah i'm never i'm never going to be as flyer as hip as brian arnold no matter how hard i try my hair my style it will never be as good as arnie he's he's just he's rico suave that's really what he is he's like the gq of of the show industry (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, he is. I think we should have a G I think we should have a seed stock edge cover with just him staring into the camera um just ominously in in a just a great turtleneck um and some plaid jeans. Something like that. <laughs> I love I love it. I'll take that to marketing and communications and see what they have. <laughs> Perfect. All right, man. Well uh have have a good rest of your time in DC and um uh, I'm sure I'll be talking to you soon. Sounds great. I appreciate it. Time's limited, so you must listen carefully. Well, guys, I guess there's only one thing left to say. I told you so. I told you in my intro that was going to be a great uh, interview. And if you don't agree, I apologize, but that's exactly how I want them to go. I want to get some impersonal details about the achievements and, and the disappointments that people are faced when coming up in this industry. And I think Clay painted a really good picture on on what his life was and and how he came up in our great industry. That's all I have to say for you. Um, If you like my stuff and and you like my interview, please go uh, share and like my page on Facebook. I would greatly appreciate that Uh, on other uh, social media platforms as well. I haven't made the Instagram yet, but I'm going to, and I'm assuming it's going to be the show with Cannon Brown. It definitely is going to be the show with Cannon Brown because there's not going to be an account taken like that. So, okay. Anyways, well, a lot of you have checked out by now and you're not listening, but so I can basically talk forever. No, I won't. I'm just kidding, but I'll talk to you guys later. I love you. Bye.